0: In 1790, George Washington gave the very first State of the Union Address. In it, he explained some of the challenges facing facing our fledgling nation, and he spoke of how Americans would have to cooperate together to secure their future. His closing paragraph began with these words, The welfare of our country is the great object to which our cares and efforts ought to be directed. In our text tonight, we find a sort of state of the famine. Egypt was facing a life and death crisis. Joseph was in charge, but he was also a man with a plan. But, you know, reading it kind of makes us scratch our heads. Of all the things Genesis records for us, I mean, we're talking about the beginning of human history, the nations of the world, all of these different things. For all that had happened for the first couple thousand years, the book's pretty short, right? Right. Uh, And of all the things that have happened in Genesis, why devote space to the economic and agrarian reforms made in an ancient kingdom that no longer exists? On top of that, we read it and Joseph's actions come off sort of harsh to us, even heartless toward a nation of starving people who are ultimately brought into servitude. And then as we consider the longer-term ramifications of the system he established here, we realize that this consolidation of power would eventually lead to the enslavement of God's people for 400 years. It was made possible because of the system of centralized government that he establishes here. So what's going on here? We know Joseph was administratively brilliant. We know he was anointed by God and used by God to save many thousands of people. But his plan, frankly, doesn't sit very well with us from the outset and from most angles that we approach it. Was he wrong to solve the problem of the famine in this way? Was it simply a mistake of judgment? Should he have been more charitable when people came hat in hand to him? And what benefit is this record for us so far removed since we're concerned, as we read the Bible, we're concerned with Israeli redemption history, we're not really concerned with Egyptian economic history. So what's the deal? Joseph's plan can speak to us tonight in three different ways. First, it sort of serves as a cautionary tale of how human systems will always degenerate. Even those that start off well with the best of intentions will in the end become corrupted because people are corrupt and therefore every human system can only have a limited benefit to a limited group of people for a limited amount of time. Second, the sad state of Egypt here at the end of Genesis is is presented in stark contrast to what God designed at the beginning of Genesis. In Eden, everywhere you look, there is life and growth and peace and limitless potential for a glorious future in perfect communion with a holy God who loves us. And now we get to the end. And in Egypt, what do we see? Waste, starvation, near societal collapse, hopelessness, and Egypt was the greatest kingdom on earth at the time. The contrast between what God had offered in the opening chapters and what mankind ultimately settled for is shocking. Third, our text closes with a direct comparison between the lost unbelievers of Egypt and God's family of faith. One group is trying to dodge death. The other is thriving in spite of the effects of sin in the world around them. So we begin in verse 13 of Genesis 47. "'But there was no food in the entire region, "'for the famine was very severe. "'The land of Egypt and the land of Canaan "'were exhausted by the famine.'" The word exhausted here can mean wasting away or fainting. This was an absolutely catastrophic emergency. This is not just, uh, I mean, hey, remember when uh, a while back there was a disruption in the shippings and things like that, and, and, or at the very beginning of the COVID lockdowns and there was no milk and there was no toilet paper, right? That, those were problems. But we're talking about here like an existential end of society problem. The entire nation is going to die if something doesn't change. We sometimes refer to things like famines or earthquakes as acts of God, right? In reality, they are acts of sin. We're in the back of Genesis. If you turn to the front, you'll see what God designed. Well, you'll see what God constructed. You see what God wanted for humanity. There weren't earthquakes. There weren't famines. There weren't tornadoes. There weren't any of those things. He wanted only perfect goodness for human beings. But when Adam and Eve picked the fruit, famines came off the branch with it. And all of the other terrible things, all of the other ruin and death and destruction that we see as normal in the world around us today, those aren't because God wanted to do bad things to people. It's because human beings chose it instead of God's good way. That's what happens when people choose sin. Genesis 47 in grace, God provided Joseph and through Joseph a way for people to be saved. Not just the chosen family of, of Jacob and his descendants, but anyone we f- have found can, could go to Egypt and be saved from starvation thanks to God's generosity. These weren't worshipers of Jehovah, these weren't people that were seeking after God. They were making gods in their own image, and yet God reaches down to them and says, I will provide a deliverer, I will provide revelation. I will provide abundant harvests for seven years leading up to the seven years of famine so that you have the opportunity to be saved. Verse 14, Joseph collected all the silver to be found in the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan in exchange for the grain they were purchasing, and he brought the silver to Pharaoh's palace. Joseph is the most powerful man, not just in Egypt. He's second to Pharaoh, but I mean, Pharaoh said, you're in charge of everything. I'm just going to hang out and you know vacation, I guess. Jo- Joseph's not only the most powerful man in Egypt, he's the most powerful man in the world at this point. And he exerts enormous control over the economy and the governmental policy of Egypt in this text. But we see that he does not do so to enrich himself. Each time he brings something in, He's careful to deposit all of it in Pharaoh's accounts. All the silver goes to Pharaoh's treasuries. All of the animals, all these different things, they go to Pharaoh. No insider deals for himself. Imagine that. Modern readers might tend to think, okay, but he should have just given the grain away for free. That's what we expect, right? That's what is normal for us from our governments, we think, right? When a disaster happens, the government shows up and they say in front of cameras, oh, we're going to spend $10 billion right, to alleviate the damage done by this hurricane or this fire or this tornado. Of course, you follow up on that and regular people never seem to actually see any of that money, do they? But, uh, but this is something that the governments of the world today say they do. Well, we'll just give all this money away. In July of 2022, Bloomberg published an article titled, How Much COVID Relief Was Stolen? No One Really Knows. And in it, they write this, hundreds of billions of dollars were likely siphoned off of aid programs, and they called it wasted money on a historic scale. So we're used to that. So on the one hand, we're like, well, the government should just come in and just give the grain to all of the people. At the same time, we understand that. Well, our government says they do that, but does it really end up happening? No, not really. So that kind of corruption and siphoning off wasn't happening under Joseph's watch because Joseph was a man with godly integrity. It's not that he had a better system. It's that he had personal integrity. He was a godly man. So why not give it all away to these hungry people? There are a few reasons at least. First, that's simply not how things were done at that time. Uh, Bible commentator Derek Kidner writes, it was unquestionable in the ancient world that one paid one's way so long as one had anything to part with, including in the last resort, one's liberty. And that's exactly what's going to play out in this passage. That's how people did things. That's how societies did things at this time. Another reason why it would have been potentially unwise for Joseph to simply give away all the grain is that, number one, the grain would have run out too quickly, and then, number two, uh, undoubtedly, a black market would have sprung up where profiteers would overcharge other refugees and and set up the system. We see this happen again and again and again uh, in, in situations like this. Joseph also had to plan past the famine. You see, the problem he was solving was not just people are hungry today, The problem he had to solve was people are hungry today and Egypt needs to exist tomorrow, right? So he had to plan past the famine. Egypt would need to sustain longer than the seven years of lack. Kenneth Matthews writes, what Joseph established not only saved the people from starvation, but also provided a system whereby they could live securely once the famine abated. And so that's why he's not just giving it all away. Verse 15, when the silver from the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan was gone, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, give us food. Why should we die here in front of you? The silver is gone. Silver so desired, so coveted, so valuable in one moment can be absolutely worthless the next. If you follow uh, some of the collapses of some of these uh, countries like Venezuela, Zimbabwe a number of years ago, where these astounding comical if they if they weren't so tragic you know headlines are coming out that a hamburger is 50 million of their dollars for real right i want a hamburger okay it's 50 million dollars and a friend of mine he had done some missions work in zimbabwe and so then after uh after you know their economy collapsed he went on ebay and he bought for you know 50 cents one of their like trillion dollar bills because they just had to keep doing this and and their money had no value And all of that money that had been stored and scratched for and saved and all that stuff is just worthless one day. You can't eat it, you can't plant it. Like our own society, Egypt was probably full of people who had dedicated their lives to piling up wealth for themselves. Silver that they worked so many years for was gone, was worthless, was, was not a factor. And it's a good reminder for us to not put our trust in silver or gold or what some sacrilegiously call the almighty dollar. That's been a great sub-theme in this section of Jacob's story, just the, the neutralization of money and silver and wealth and how even when Jacob was hoping it would make a difference for his situation, it just didn't, uh, and in fact, it caused some problems for them. But even here, we see all of the silver, it was just gone, and guess what? People were still hungry. People were still in need. They said, why should we die here in front of you? Good question. They shouldn't. Uh, Joseph didn't want them to die. More importantly, God didn't want them to die. He wanted them to live. Even though they were unbelievers, even though they were pagans, he wanted them to live. That's why he put Joseph in that position. That's why he allowed Joseph to go through all of that suffering so that people might be saved in the end. He wants you to live too. He wants your family, your neighbors, your friends and enemies. He wants them to live. And there's no need for anyone to die eternally when God our Father has thrown open the gates to his throne and he has unlocked his storehouses and he has beckoned all to come and say, hey, come and receive from me so that you can live and not die. In their hour of need, Whether you were a Canaanite or Egyptian or whoever, there was only one place they could go to the person God had provided. It didn't matter if you were Egyptian. It didn't matter if you were a Canaanite. It didn't matter if you were a Hebrew. Everybody streamed to not a place, but to a person. They came to Joseph, this one man who could save them. And he was ready to save anyone who came to be saved. And the parallels to Jesus Christ are are obvious and beautiful. You can come from any any corner of the world. You can come from any walk of life. You can come with any level of need. And he says, come, the storehouses are ready. I will distribute to you freely. If you will give yourself to me, I will give myself to you. Verse 16 says, but Joseph said, give me your livestock. Since the silver is gone, I'll give you food in exchange for your livestock. So it's hard to know for sure whether the people actually brought their animals and dropped them off at Pharaoh's palace. That seems pretty impractical. On the other hand, these hungry people had no food to feed their livestock, so that's a problem. So whether they were actually giving the animals away into Pharaoh's you know, stables uh, or whether they were sort of mortgaging them and saying, okay, well, now you own it and I'm going to lease this animal back from you for food... Uh, either way, what this meant was that Pharaoh would be responsible to now feed the animals, maintain the animals, watch over the animals. Joseph is not just taking the animals as pure profit, he's relieving the pen- penniless Egyptians from the responsibility of caring for these animals, this livestock, and this livestock was essential for the nation and for the international economy. Right, they have to have these animals. We don't have livestock because that's a big bother and we have cars, right? And so, but their national and international economy was was dependent on this livestock and they had no food to feed it. So Joseph is not just saying, well, just give me your animals and I'm just going to leave you even poorer than before. He says, okay, listen, the livestock have to survive. You have no food to feed them. Give us ownership and control over the livestock. We will keep them alive, and probably you will actually keep the actual animal at your house because you're going to need these animals to till the ground eventually. But it's not just a pure profit scheme that Joseph is bringing into Pharaoh. He says, hey, we're going to take the responsibility of maintaining these animals so that you don't have to. Verse 17, so they brought their livestock to Joseph, and he gave them food in exchange for the horses, the flocks of sheep, the herds of cattle, and the donkeys. That year, he provided them with food in exchange for all their livestock. Scholars tell us that where it says he provided them with food, it can be understood as he escorted them through distress to safety. What a lovely thing to read. Joseph used his great power not to oppress, but to assist and to guide. He walked with these needy, desperate people through the valley of the shadow of death. He was with them along the way, but it was a long walk year after year. The famine dragged on. And as it dragged on, not only was it a, a long walk, but we realize that Joseph had to shoulder more and more and more responsibility, more weight as more and more people became hungrier and hungrier and he says, okay and he's having to manage, okay, are the storehouses enough? And he had, Our Lord his storehouses never run out of course, but we see as, as Joseph takes on this compassionate responsibility, it's not just a one-time thing he did. He's not just lining his pockets. He's not just making Pharaoh wealthier, more powerful than he was before. He is taking on himself the weight of the responsibility of every life of every family of every animal of the entire entire global community he's the guy being used by god to make sure that they are seen through this famine a famine that was there because human beings chose to sin instead of to honor god and to go his way verse 18 says when that year was over they came the next year and they said to him we cannot hide from our lord that the silver is gone and that all the livestock belongs to our Lord, there's nothing left for our Lord except our bodies and our land. Why should we die here in front of you, both us and our land, by us and our land in exchange for food? And then we and our land will become Pharaoh's slaves, give us seed so that we can live and not die, and so that the land won't become desolate. Cynics out there will say, well, the Old Testament is pro-slavery. Uh, the Bible, it, it, it gives a thumbs up to slavery and so therefore we should, dis- we should throw the Bible out like an old weird book. We read this or sections in the Law of Moses that talk about owning or becoming slaves and if we're honest, it feels a little sketchy, right? Because slavery is bad and we all agree with that. So what's going on? The reality is the slavery being discussed here is not what we think of when we think about slavery in America. American slavery, more modern slavery, the kind of slavery that exists still today in uh, parts of Asia or the Middle East, that's known as chattel slavery, right? And in in that type of slavery, a person is not considered a person. They're treated as property and they have zero freedom, right? Uh, That's the kind of slavery that was part of America's past. This is referring to what we would call indentured servitude. And here's how that worked. When a person had a debt but no money to pay the debt, they could freely choose to become a servant to their creditor until the debt was settled. That seems archaic to us, but there's actually. Have you seen any old sitcom where they go to the restaurant and they eat the food, and then through whatever wacky series of events, there's no money, there's no wallet, something's happened. What do they have to do? They have to wash dishes the rest of the night in order to pay for their meal. That's indentured servitude. They said, hey, you ate the food. You have no money. You owe us, so you're going to pay us with labor. You're going to wash dishes all night, and the laugh track is going to laugh it all up, and then, and then you have settled the debt. That's indentured servitude. The Egyptians were not becoming chattel s- slaves here. They would still retain their personal freedom. Their lives would be the same. They were farmers before. They were farmers still. They would have personal freedom to come and go before. They still would after this agreement. But now they were becoming employees of the crown, employees under Pharaoh with the legal requirements that come along with that. And we noticed that it was their idea. It wasn't Joseph's idea. He didn't come and say, I've got an idea and like put his fingers together, Mr. Burns style. He, they came to him and they said, listen, we don't have anything left. We, we need to solve this. We understand that you're not just gonna give it all to us which they wouldn't have thought that he should have anyway in their culture and in that time. And so it was their idea. This was a widespread practice throughout Mesopotamia, particularly during famines. There's all kinds of old... Uh, uh, documents and agreements that they have found in in different places from ancient times in Mesopotamia where they said, hey, this famine happened, so this group of people said to this king, we'll work for you as long as you, you pay us and take care of us and protect us and see us through this thing. As Henry Morris points out, the alternative to this plan would either be death for all the people or social anarchy, which of course just means death for the people, right? So we see the word slaves in the Old Testament in some of these passages, and it bothers us. But we need to understand, first, that this is not American slavery. And second, the plan that they're talking about, we're becoming slaves to Pharaoh, this is going to cost Pharaoh quite a bit. Because now the crown is responsible to not only protect the kingdom and its borders, but to also now feed and clothe and support all the people and their animals. Not just for a couple of years, but continually. So that's what's going on here. If Joseph rejected their proposal, the result would have been that all the people would eventually die and they say the land is going to revert to desert, right? So they had developed Egypt, they had irrigated it, they had turned it sort of into a faux garden that could grow some things. And they said, but if we don't keep it up, the desert is going is to claim the land of Egypt. And that was true. And so again, we have this incredible contrast between God's Eden and man's Egypt. Egypt is the best, the strongest, the place to be. And it, it was just a year or two from being swallowed up by the sand dunes, just gone, wiped off of the, the face of the earth. Meanwhile, God has wanted Egypt for us, or sorry, Eden for us this whole time. That's what God wanted. What did God want for humanity? He wanted Eden, where everywhere you look, it's green. Everywhere you look, is growing. Every tree is bearing fruit, thousands upon thousands of trees, and you're hanging out with animals, and you're doing all of this incredible stuff. That's what God wanted. But we failed as, as the human race. That's what sin did. We remember back in Genesis 2, the Lord, he put Adam and Eve in the garden, and he said to Adam, what he wanted him to do was to work the garden and to watch over it right? He says, you have dominion. That's your job. We're gonna, I'm going to partner with you and we're going to commune together. But your job, Adam, is to work this beautiful, good garden and to watch over it. And now we fast forward a few generations later and what do we see at the back of the book? What has man accomplished? We can barely keep God's good creation from being completely ruined because of the sin that we introduced into the cosmos, Notice they not only ask for food, but they also ask for seed. This is great. They believe that Joseph was right when he said the famine would end. So he's not just an ATM to them. They're not just going to say, you have stuff, give us stuff. They say, okay, Joseph, we believe you. You were right that there was going to be seven abundant years. You were right that there are seven hard years, and we believe that those years are going to come to an end. And so don't just give us grain to eat. Give us seed to plant because we're coming to the end of this thing, and we're going to see a crop after those seven years end. They had that hope only because God had revealed it to them. Joseph didn't show up and say, I know what's happening The people of Egypt said, we heard you can interpret dreams. And he says, I can only tell you what God says. And luckily for them, God had the grace enough to reveal to them what was going to happen. He's a God of revelation. But they did believe that revelation. And so they hung the weight of their lives on Joseph and by extension, God's grace and what he had revealed. Verse 20, in this way, Joseph acquired all the land in Egypt from Pharaoh because every Egyptian sold his field. Since the famine was so severe for them, the land became Pharaoh's and Joseph made the people servants from one end of Egypt to the other. Now, your version may say that Joseph moved the people all into cities from one end of Egypt to another. The truth is the Hebrew words are very similar. Septuagint has it one way. The Hebrew Bible has it another way. Uh, and I'm not a linguist, but the one, one linguist shows it in the book. He says, Here, here's what the Hebrew looks like, you know, the one way, and here's what it would look like the other way. And there's just two very small characters different somehow between those phrases. So scholars aren't exactly sure. It's possible that Joseph brought the people temporarily into distribution centers, or it's possible that he removed people from their hereditary land and relocated them to make this transition easier. The transition was, you don't own land anymore, Pharaoh does. And so it won, some scholars think maybe he said, so you, you don't live at your family property anymore, you live over here just to help smooth that over. Some think he moved workers into the cities and then they commuted to farms. We aren't sure. What's clear is that farming was still happening. They didn't suddenly say, well, we don't farm anymore, we all are just city people now. Uh, They were still going to farm, but now it was going to be a tenant farming situation. Verse 22, only the land of the priests he did not buy, for the priests had rations allotted to them by Pharaoh, and they ate their rations, which Pharaoh gave them. Therefore, they did not sell their land. So it seems that Pharaoh sort of stepped in at this point. He said, hey, this is all fine what you're doing, but the priest class is exempt from this. In fact, in verse 17, where it's listing the animals that came in, horses and cattle and all of this stuff, the fact that horses are listed, horses were uh, an animal of the aristocracy of the high class, um, upper echelon people. And so it, it's indicating that, that Joseph treated everybody the same, whether you were rich or poor, whether you were important, not important, he says, hey, everybody's getting the same deal, right? And that makes sense because God is not a respecter of persons, his grace is the same, right? And, but Pharaoh steps in, and he says, not the priests. They're getting their own thing. I give them a salary. I give them their own food. They get to keep their land. And so Pharaoh says, the priests are exempt. They get all of their stuff. And it is attested to widely in archaeological history that the priests were exempt from these taxes and had their own lands. But again, this is a cautionary tale. You see, the priests of Egypt over time became richer and richer, stronger and stronger, And over that time, tension would begin to build between the pharaohs and the priests because ultimately, the priests had more power and wealth than the king actually did. One source writes this, In time, the priests began to serve themselves more than the people or even the gods. One of the contributing factors to the collapse of the central government at the end of the old kingdom was that the king had exempted the priesthood from paying taxes. What started off well in the human system degenerated and decayed and brought destruction. Why? Because even though it was well-meaning and generous at the first, it was corrupted because men are corrupt. And inevitably, the human system brought destruction instead of construction. Meanwhile, these priests who Pharaoh was protecting, who Pharaoh was carving out for, who Pharaoh was insulating from the pain of this famine... They should have had to answer to the starving people of Egypt. Where was Neper, the god of grain? Where was Osiris, the god of agriculture and vegetation? Where was men? or Renenutet, or Dedon, all gods of wealth and prosperity and harvest, all gods that demanded sacrifices and demanded rituals and demanded all of these things, all gods that these priests were more than happy to tell the people, you must serve these gods, and if you don't, we'll kill you. Where were these gods? They were all silent because they were all non-existent. And the priests don't have to answer for it. They were supposed to be the representatives of these gods, but they were representing representing an empty room, a dead idol. They did nothing to help. They did nothing to save. They did nothing to assist. In fact, these priests and their gods were simply a liability. They were soaking up the few resources that the people of Egypt so desperately needed. Meanwhile, the God of Abraham made it his business to help and to save and to provide and to reveal and to put his people into a position, even though it meant suffering for them, so that pagan unbelievers could actually hear the truth and have a chance to be saved. Oh, what God has done to pour out grace on an unbelieving and undeserving world. Verse 23 continues, then Joseph said to the people, indeed, I have bought you and your land this day for Pharaoh. Look, here is seed for you, and you shall sow the land, and it shall come to pass in the harvest that you shall give one-fifth to Pharaoh, four-fifths shall be your own as seed for the field and for your food, for those of your households, and for food for your little ones. I love any time the Bible talks about little ones. It's great. So this 20% flat tax in Egypt was much less than the norm at the time. Seems high to us maybe, but it was actually much less. At other points in Egyptian history, the tax was more like 33%, upwards of 40%. Under Hammurabi in Babylon, tax on produce was 66%. It was 50% in Sparta, 75% in ancient Iran. So the truth is, uh, this was not a high tax at all course, it makes Israel's 10% tithe seem tame, but, but but this was still a low bar comparatively. Now that sin dominated creation, the sad fact was that taxes were necessary. Why? Well, because governments are, were and are needed to control human behavior. And we know here from what's happening that some central planning was necessary because... This wasn't the last famine. This wasn't the only famine. This wasn't the only disaster or cataclysm. Other famines would come. Hostile armies would would invade. There would be problems. Floods would decimate crops. And then what would happen? And so sadly, we find in the book of Genesis, taxes like famines are reality because of sin. And, And that's what's going on here. Verse 25, so they said, you have saved our lives. We are eternally grateful. No, they didn't say that. You have saved our lives. Let us find favor in the sight of my Lord, and we will be Pharaoh's servants. And Joseph made it a law over the land of Egypt to this day that Pharaoh should have one-fifth except for the land of the priests only, which did not become Pharaoh's. There's research that shows their words here. You have saved our lives are more than just a grateful sentiment that they were also a legally binding agreement. At the same time, Joseph was a national hero. They saw his actions as full of grace and compassion. Their response to his grace was a desire to serve and to remain under the protection of the king. They didn't say, hey, we're, we're trying to get out of this as fast as we can. They said, we want to stay in the service of the king because of the grace you're showing us. But still, this is a far cry from what God established, what God wanted back in the beginning of the book in the Garden of Eden. And what was a welcome relief for the Egyptians at the time would become a very uh, brutal and oppressive regime later on. That's what sin does to human systems. Meanwhile, back at the ranch, verse 27, so Israel dwelt in the land of Egypt in the country of Goshen, and they had possessions there and grew and multiplied exceedingly. What a dramatic statement after the verses we just read. Egypt is dying. People are starving. Their only option is indentured servitude. They give up everything just to survive. And then you pan over to God's people, and it's like it's a completely different world. They have all they need. They have food. They have their animals, their flocks, their herds. They have their own land. It remains theirs. They have a future not guaranteed by a corruptible government, but guaranteed by an incorruptible and faithful God. This multiplication, this fruitfulness we're seeing here, it is a culmination of what God has wanted all along in this book. God told Adam and Eve, and Noah, and Ishmael, and Abraham, and Isaac, and Jacob, be fruitful and multiply, that's what I want for you. He said it again and again, many times, and here it is happening in spite of the worst famine the world had ever seen. Because fruitfulness isn't connected to whether winds blow, or rains fall, crops come in. Fruitfulness comes from God. He brings manna into the wilderness. There's nothing here. There's just rocks and dirt. He's like, actually, no, there's honey cakes from heaven that you get to eat. Blammo. There it is. Gather as much as you want. That's what he delights to do. At the same time, Bible commentator Eugene Rupp points out, when we compare Israel to Egypt in this dramatic scene, God's people don't quite fit in with what's going on, do they? Abraham, of course, didn't quite fit in in Canaan. Noah didn't quite fit in in Mesopotamia. The Christians didn't quite fit in in ancient Rome. We can't quite fit in because the Christian life is a completely different world than the Egypt everyone else lives in. Yeah, we live in the same geographical location, but the worlds are completely different. That's what we're seeing here. Look at Egypt for Egyptians. Look at Egypt for Israel. It's completely different. We need to understand the differences of the worlds, the world of God's kingdom versus the kingdoms of this earth. And we need to conduct ourselves accordingly. We don't want to fit in with the famine. We want to enjoy the full fruitfulness of God by being in the place he's placed us, following his leading, abiding by his boundaries, trusting in his provision day by day, knowing he is with us no matter what.